Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the podcast in P-Town. Hope everybody's having another good week out there. Sorry this is coming out a little bit late. We had a little get-together here last night, so I wasn't able to record, so getting this one out a little bit late for you. So, news. Um, I think I may have talked about it in the last podcast, but I think everybody heard about the tweet from LeBron James uh, that he sent to that cop saying, you're next. And I think LeBron James probably ought to just stick to basketball and not given his view on everything because he's making himself look like a freaking idiot. And I think he's doing more to polarize the public than he is to actually helping people. I understand that there's some valid concerns out there, but I don't know that he has the best way of uh, going about it. And, you know, he doesn't realize that, yeah, there's some bad stuff that happens out there, but these cops are putting their life on the line every single day to give people, try to keep people safe and give people the freedoms. And yeah, there are some bad cops out there, but I think by profession, that's less than 1%. I saw a report that I think it's less than 1% of the police officers out there are actually ones that we would consider bad. And now that you know, the footage came out from that neighbor across the street from where that uh, young girl got shot. I mean, yeah, it is a tragedy, but, you know, it's kind of like they say, if you don't want to be harassed by the cops and don't go around breaking the law, it's pretty much as uh, simple as that. Another story, did you guys see, I think it was on the UFC fight, I think it was last night, you see that guy break his leg? It's the only US, UFC fight that has ever been completed without a single punch being thrown and it was a pretty gruesome break it was it's pretty nasty but other than that this uh one we're going to do today is actually a suggestion that was sent in by my best friend and so we're going to talk this time about the king ranch down in texas and so this ranch it was started by a guy by the name well mainly it was started by a guy by the name of richard king and he was born in New York, and his parents were Irish immigrants. And I think he was conscripted or something to be a jeweler's assistant or something like that in New York. But he wasn't into that, so he ended up becoming a sailor. And he ended, he actually eventually got a captain's rating. And he met up with a business partner, or who became a business partner by a guy by the name of Mifflin Kennedy. And he was the captain of a steamboat called the Champion. And these guys, they met up in 1843, and they both actually served under Zachary Taylor in the military, and he was a general at the time, and as you know, he ended up becoming the 12th president of the United States. But they fought in the Mexican-American War, and after the war was over, King, he hauled merchandise up the Rio Grande River, and Kennedy hauled goods overland uh, to Mexico. And then in 1850... These guys and two other guys started a transport business to haul goods from Brazos Santiago Santiago Harbor up the Rio Grande, and they were they were actually making pretty good money at this since they were, they were the ships that they were using they were flying under the Mexican flag or they originally departed from Mexico so the Union ships couldn't blockade them from transporting their goods because this was getting up close to you know Civil War times and. Um, so they were able to get their ships through there. But they end up making quite a bit of money at this. And then I think the two guys, the two other guys had sold out of the company. And 
it kind of they kind of gave that up. So then with some change in his pocket, King, he was headed to the fair in Corpus Christi in 1852. This I think it was called the Lone Star Fair or something like that. And he was headed up there from Brownsville, and it was a four-day horseback ride from Brownsville to Corpus Christi. And while he was riding along, he ended up seeing the Santa Gertrudis Creek on the way. And it was the first stream he'd seen on the desert that he was going through. And it was shaded by mesquite trees, and it looked pretty nice after four days of not seeing anything. It looked pretty nice to him. And so when he arrived at the fair, him and a friend of his, a Texas Ranger by the name of Captain Gideon K. Legs Lewis, they agreed that they were going to take this land and turn it into a ranch. And I guess evidently back in those days, if you saw some land that you liked, you just took it and made it your own. But this ranch, it ended up being uh, named the uh, LK brand which was the brand that they started with out there. And I guess you can guess what that stands for. And so they were, uh, this was kind of the begin, the humble beginnings of the ranch. So they ended up starting a cow, cramp, a cow camp on the creek, and uh, King ended up buying another plot of land. It was called the Rincon de Santa Gertrudis Grant, and he ended up paying $300 for this, and it was 15.5 thousand acres. And I'd like to be able to buy land at a price like that. But he bought this in 1853. And then it was kind of interesting how him and Lewis worked this because he sold Lewis an undivided half interest for $2,000. But then at the same time, Lewis sold King an undivided half interest in the, it was called the Ranchos of Manuel Barrara and Juan Villarreal. And he sold it to him for the same amount. So they basically just traded amounts. Neither one of them really had to spend any money. And so they both had undivided half interests in each uh, in each other's property. And in 1854, they ended up purchasing 53,000 more acres. And the ranch, the ranches that they, or the plots of land that they had, they ended up eventually getting up to 1.2 million acres. It's not quite that big right now, but that's how much they ended up having at one time. But Lewis, things kind of went down for downhill for him the next year. He was having an affair with a woman all the way up to the point that her husband found out and ended up killing him. And so in 1856, the court had to have a sale of Lewis's property. So with all the half-interest stuff going on and whatnot, King still had to find a way to keep his or to keep this property. So he arranged for a guy by the name of Major Chapman to bid on the Rincon property. And he got that, uh, or he got it for $1,575. And then he had another guy by the name of Captain James Walworth who ended up buying the De La Garza grant for $5,000. So he and Walworth became business partners at, on this. And um, Walworth, though, he was a silent partner in that dealing. He uh, kind of just let King do what he wanted to do. And Walworth would just take, you know, part of the earnings, and Walworth also paid the taxes for all the property and whatnot. But, so having a ranch, King figured he needed somebody to work it, and so he would end up getting a bunch of uh, Mexican guys to come work it, and they said one time in 1854, King went to Cruelius, or Cruelius, Mexico, and he he bought the entire village's cattle. Every cattle, all the cattle they had in that village, he ended up buying all of them. 
And so he was turned around and uh, headed back with these cows. But when he left, he got to thinking that the people had in that village had no source of income because the the cattle was the way that they got along. And so he went back and he offered everyone a job for, and he would give them a job for food, shelter, and income. And a lot of them ended up agreeing to that and uh, moved to Texas with him. And then a lot, they they went up there and worked the ranch, but. Uh, Quite a few years later, a lot of them ended up returning back to their land or back down there to that village after they'd uh, worked for him for a few years. By 1859, they ended up raising cattle, horses, sheep, and goats. And the ranch, it was known for raising the Texas Longhorn. And then they also had a lot of Brahma bulls that they had actually imported from India. And they also had shorthorns and herefords. But the Brahmas... They end up crossing these with the shorthorns to create the Santa Gertrudis breed. And that's a breed that's well known today. They, uh, they crossed these and basically created that breed. And it was finally recognized as an actual breed of cattle uh, back in 1940. But from 1861 to 1872, they were kind of up and down times for the ranch. The prices of the cattle fluctuated a lot uh, through that time because of the war. And also the Texas Rangers were broken up during that time also. So a lot of the cattle ended up getting herded off. And by 1872, King had around 48,000 of his original 84,000 head of cattle uh, back to him. Like I said, some of the cattle, they either wander off or get herded off or whatnot. And yeah, he started out that time with 84,000 and he was able to get 48,000 head of them back. So to handle some of this, uh, these problems that were going on, the ranchers down there, they formed the Stock Raisers Association of Western Texas. And by 1874, the Texas Rangers were also back in the saddle. And so this was helping to cut down on cattle getting stolen or lost or whatever. And it was, allowing, it was also having the Texas Rangers around and whatnot. It was helping the, cat, the guys to be able to drive their cattle on a 100-day drive to Kansas, and then they'd put them on a train and send them up to the stockyards up north, up in Chicago and New York and things like that because they said that they were able to get like double or triple the price of the cattle by having them shipped up there than they would be to having them down in, uh, down in Texas. But the ranch, it ended up continuing to grow and uh, King had also married a gal by the name of Henrietta. He married her in nineteen or er, in eighteen fifty four, and she ended up dying. And to kind of tell you how big the ranch was at this time, her her part of the estate alone was worth five point four million dollars, and she was the listed owner of nine hundred ninety seven thousand four hundred forty four acres, and that didn't include a bunch of the other land that was part of the ranch at the time. So this kind of um, set them back paying the inheritance ta- inheritance tax and all that stuff. And I think they said by the time it was done, her part of the estate was about $300,000 in debt. And so they ended up, a bunch of the children were coming up at this time, and they were uh, starting to run, run the ranch, and the children actually started exploring the oil deposits that were on the ranch. And they were able to pay off the debts from the taxes of Henrietta dying and still able to retain a profit. So they were able to uh, kind of turn things around there and turn it into a pretty thriving business down there. 
And so we can now we'll kind of move into that's kind of the history of the ranch, how things got started and whatnot. So we can kind of talk about some of the notable things that were on this ranch. First of all, we're going to talk about my favorite thing on the ranch was the horses. And if you remember in a previous podcast uh, that I had on the American Quarter Horse, the uh, and I'd mentioned Wimpy in there. Well, the King Ranch had Wimpy, and he was the first registered American Quarter Horse. And he was a grandsire of another horse named Old Sorrel, which the ranch also owned. And every horse on the ranch now is still a descendant of Old Sorrel. And it's kind of Wimpy was the first registered quarter horse. And I think Old Sorrel, they ended up getting him registered, but he was farther down the line, maybe number three or something like that. I don't remember. But they also had another horse named Mr. Uh, Mr. San Pepe, and he was a champion cutting horse. Um, and so he was another pretty good horse for him. And then in 1983, they bought a horse by the name of Dry Dock, which I'm assuming must come back from the Dock Bar breeding. And they were trying to outcross some of the traditional bloodlines. And the dock bar breeding horses, they were really good cattle horses and that type of thing. And then I think they also got into some of the Poco Bueno breeds or bloodlines and whatnot. But they didn't only have quarter horses. They also raised thoroughbreds. And if you're a horse person, you've probably heard of the Triple Crown, which uh, this is when a horse wins the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes. And it's kind of the greatest thing to achieve in thoroughbred racing, anyhow. And they had a horse that was named Assault. And he ended up winning the Triple Crown in 1946. And there's only been a handful of horses that have ever won the Triple Crown. A lot of the horses will win the Kentucky Derby or the Preakness or a couple of them. But they'll never, um, there's not too many of them that win the Triple Crown. You know, Secretariat did it. And um, I wish my mom was here because she'd remember the most recent one that did it but I'm, I don't remember which one that was but throughout all the years they'd had loads of Kentucky Derby winners and um, different winners and the, the Kentucky Derby is kind of a big thing it's probably the most prolific single race that is around nowadays and so they uh, like I said they had quite a few horses that ended up winning that and also like I'd mentioned they had um, the ranch was the ranch that started up the Santa Gertrudis breed, which is a pretty well-known breed nowadays of cattle. And there's also hunting on the ranch, and people can go down there. They can uh, hunt deer. They can hunt wild quail or wild turkey, quail, uh, hunt javelina, and wild boar. And then they can also hunt an animal called the nilgai. And this was their an exotic animal. They kind of look like a springbok or something. Kind of they're a little bit bigger and their horns go straight up, but they don't, it doesn't look like from the pictures that I saw that their horns go up kind of as high as what a springbok does. But they end up getting these things, they acquired them from the San Diego Zoo in nineteen tw- in the 1920s, and now there end up being over 12,000 of these nilgai living on the ranch. And that kind of, kind of speaks to the uh, preservation efforts that this ranch has done. Um, if you look at a lot of different places, they talk about how the ranch was really big in preservation and, um, they set up uh, probably partially for the hunting and whatnot, but they set up, have some like windmills set up and at all the windmills, they have water troughs and stuff set up for the animals to come in and, uh, just help keep them going, I guess. 
But now the brand of the ranch, it's the running W, and it's still kind of a mystery as to why they chose this brand. Some say it was because of the rattlesnakes that they have on the ranch, and then some say it's because of Santa Gertrudis Creek that runs that the ranch was kind of founded on. And then those are the two main theories. There's another one that says it um it kind of talks it's kind of a symbolism of continuance you know, from where it started and it continues kind of up and down and whatnot and saying that it will continue on to the future. But nobody knows the exact reason of why, of how this brand came about. But irregardless, it's kind of become one of the best known brands there ever was. And if you look at any uh, King Ranch Ford pickup, you'll see the brand on there. And King Ranch, they'd worked with Ford pretty uh pretty extensively to develop that and i think now they said that the king ranch has well over 300 um ford pickups that they use for their their uh guys that work on the ranch and the ranch in 1960 or 61 i think it was the ranch actually became a national historic landmark but it the other thing with the ranch too it's also become really commercialized they offer tours uh, of the ranch, take you out and show you what, you know, what the guys do out on the ranch. And there's actually a, a, quite a few different businesses that are associated with the ranch. You can look at their website and there's a careers deal on there, uh, a careers tab on there. And there's just a, quite a few different jobs that they have listed in different businesses that are associated with the ranch. They have a saddle making um, company there on the ranch. And, you know, obviously there's actually jobs where you can be a laborer in the stockyards or there's, uh, I think, some jobs where you can just go out and be a cowboy, which I would love that. Stick me on a horse and send me out there. That'd be great. But the ranch, it's currently, it's the largest ranch in the United States currently. And right now they say that it encompasses about 825,000 acres. Uh, it's not all in one contiguous space plot of land it has actually four different locations um down in south texas but the whole size of the ranch if you were to put all all of the different plots of land together the whole size of the ranch would be about the size of rhode island so a whole state and just kind of as side note on this as big as a ranch is it's still it's not the largest ranch in the world the largest ranch is from what I could find is one called Anna Creek station in Australia. And that ranch is said is slightly larger than the country of Israel. And it's seven times larger than the King ranch. So like I said, the King ranch, 825,000 acres. Well, this one down in Australia is seven times bigger than that one. And that, that, so that's pretty amazing. I think another place said that, um, it's about the size of Tennessee but it accounts for 1.6% of the total size of Australia. And uh, it, other big ranches, the Ted Turner, he owns a huge ranch in New Mexico. And it's right outside, I think it's called Truth and Consequences, New Mexico, which kind of a weird name for a town. I think I'm going to have to research that and find out how that came about. But it's a uh, it's pretty good size. But that ranch, it's also encompassing... A lot of area, or they'd also had a lot of area, I think, in Brazil and uh, some South American um, properties in with that one. 
And then the Mormon Church, as a matter of fact, they own a, own a big ranch down in Florida. And I think that one's called Deseret or something like that. But I thought it was kind of interesting or strange to see a church or a uh, ranch being owned by an actual religion. So that's pretty much it for the King Ranch. It was actually pretty interesting to uh, take a look at this. And there's a lot more that um, you could probably go into on some different things at the ranch. But, uh, yeah, I kind of wanted to get this out. And uh, like I said, it was my best friend ended up uh, suggesting this one to me. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Uh, let me know what you think. Reach out on the uh, podcast from P-Town Facebook page. Or you can hit me up on P-Town Podcast on Instagram. Or you can uh, send me an email at ptownpodcast74 at gmail.com. And we'll see you guys on the next one. Thanks a lot. And just as a final note, um, I'm not really good at editing and slipping things in on this, but I messed up at one part of this. I said that uh, Wimpy was the grandsire of Old Sorrel, and I had that backwards. Sorrel, or Old Sorrel, was the grandsire of Wimpy. So I just wanted to make that correction there.